0: This episode is brought to you by Libro FM, the first and only company that lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. Ours is the Reading Rock Books in Dixon, Tennessee. You can pick from more than 150,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a different story, one that supports the community. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. Listen during your commute while doing chores, walking the dogs, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro FM app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from the people who know audiobooks best, booksellers. The Good Old Days has a special offer for you. Get 2 audiobooks for the price of 1 with your first month of membership using the code OLDDAYS, all one word. O L D D A Y S, Old Days. There's also a special offer until the end of 2020 for the holidays. When you buy a 12-month Libro FM gift membership, either for yourself or for someone else, half of that will go directly to the bookstore of your choice. The offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S. Now on to our
1: show. In late 1828, Paris police received a perplexing letter. All the way from England it traveled, containing a deathbed confession with a note from the dead man's priest. Though the priest said the man was now gone, purged of his sins before God, he thought the confession might be of interest to the Parisian police. The story, if true, bordered on unbelievable. Plots so deep, deceptions so brazen, the story was truly sensational. By his own admission, this Frenchman was both predator and prey, but the most remarkable character was a man named Pierre Picard. Picard suffered unimaginable treachery at the hands of supposed friends, but the revenge he inflicted became the stuff of legend and inspired one of the most famous novels of all time, The Count of Monte Cristo. Today, we are going to tell you a story of betrayal and revenge, a tale void of redemption for all involved. This is the story of the real Count of Monte Cristo. And we are live. This is The Good Old Day. Podcast at the corner of history and true crime. I'm Maggie Coomer. And I'm Jasmine Brand. And welcome back. So, how are you feeling? Tired. Tired. Weather change. Yeah. I think everyone's going through that. Yeah. Christmas time is here.
0: Uh. (laughs) (laughs) See, I moved to the small Hallmark town with a
1: (laughs) small Hallmark town. (laughs) The small Hallmark town. Yeah.
0: With not a great sense of Christmas.
1: And I'm still waiting. Uh, We haven't put up our tree. I don't know if we're going. I just don't feel into it this year.
0: I get the Queen Victoria tree from our friend Jesse. Oh, he's doing some stuff with it. And then he said, I can borrow it. So I get a very historical. I'll post it on our Instagram when okay. I get it. And what is this exactly? It's the tree with the little baskets of like candies and nuts and um, like the like the first Christmas tree. Oh, yeah. yeah. OK, cool. So, yeah, she's often credited with bringing. Well, she is credited with bringing the first tree into the palace. Yeah. And um, that was because of her husband, who was German and has all the German influence. Yeah. And then it's all of the like traditional Victorian era mm-hmm. decorations.
1: So basically, before Queen Victoria, the Christmas tree was a very pagan symbol, very Germanic. But she married Prince Albert, who was a German. And so he put up a Christmas tree and they decorated it with little baskets of sweets and goodies. So that's what you're going to get. You're going to get one of those. I am. That's really cool. I like that. So I'm excited. Nice. Very Very
0: historical Christmas tree. Be my first historical Christmas tree.
1: Man, everybody I encounter goes, are you going to decorate for Christmas? I'm like, I just don't know. And every single person says, I decorated several weeks ago because I just needed to pick my spirits up. It's like everybody is doing this. And um, I just can't. Because I'm going to have to take apart my studio downstairs to get to the closet with all the (laughs) Christmas tree bullshit. I'm like, I don't know if I care that much. Yeah. So what are we talking about today, Jasmine? We're talking about your favorite story. I'm so excited. My God, I am very excited. So one of my favorite novels of all time is The Count of Monte Cristo by Alexandre Dumas. And today we're going to tell you the story of the real man who inspired the lead character. Um, The lead character in the novel is named Edmund Dantes. But today we are going to tell you the story of Pierre Picard. When I started researching this case earlier this week, I found uh, there are really two main sources that talk about this. And one of them is called the diamond of vengeance. It's from 1830 and it's a collection of basically stories about police files and it's in French. And so I went ahead. It was like 30 pages long. So I went ahead and I, I translated it in Google Translate, which took a while. Um, and it's hilarious because, you know, Google Translate is not the best, but it, it, you can get a good sense of, of what the essence of the story is. So I did that. And then Jasmine found a 1930s version. Uh, at the archive, I think the National Archives website. And so we read that and compared notes. And it's really interesting because that one claims to have used this one as its as it's like
0: source material. But it's suitable for 1930s audience.
1: It is. It is. So we we surmise that the difference is really because of the time period and who was reading it. So uh, we have constructed the tale here as accurately as we think we can. But yeah, so we're working off of those, those two main sources for Picard's story today. And Jasmine, uh, Jasmine's going to give us a little bit of background uh, about what Pierre Picard's existence would have looked like in 1807. He was a a shoemaker. Right. So tell me a little bit about that.
0: Yeah. And being the historian I am, (laughs) I went into a very weird rabbit hole of shoemakers in 19th century Paris. And this is a specific thing. Many people surprisingly have written like in-depth articles. And even I found a Ph.D. thesis on that. Um, and I'm gonna link all of them nice. for our curious, curious uh, audience, our curious campers, because it is honestly really interesting because it incorporates a little aspect of the Napoleonic Wars and what's going on in Europe at the time mm-hmm. through the lens of a shoemaker, and that's because you know France at this point has very defined careers. I guess
1: we're gonna say them or professions or whatever, however you want to categorize this. But it's a class-based society, and you're your profession will dictate your class, yes. right? Yes,
0: yeah. So they okay. could take like a sampling of people from within these different professions and get a really good gauge on what that class was doing, how they were living, etc. cetera. Mm-hmm. Um, and so shoemaking is one that is pretty well documented because it was a very small scale thing, especially towards the beginning of the 1800s. Mm-hmm. And it was a very like refined craft. And I tried various different ways of putting this into my own words, but I found an article by Michael David Sabali. Apologies if that's not the right pronunciation. I Apologies it if is. we
1: mispronounce everything yes. in this episode. Because, you know, French. What are you going <laughs> to do? All right.
0: And in it, basically, he outlines how a typical shoemaker is from a poor family. He either learns learns from his father or goes and apprentices somewhere as, and they start as young as 12 or 13. Yeah. So it's like a lifelong pursuit. Mm -hmm. And typically that young boy is going to be an apprentice for a minimum of two and a half years, but could be three or four years and would kind of be set out into the world on their own, no later than the age of 18, at Mm -hmm. which point they're an adult. If they don't have their own shop or family shop, they have to figure it out. And usually you know, and it's the same today. People want to hire the more skilled, the the, I guess the people with more backing behind them that have mm-hmm. done this for a longer period of time. So even if he had been an apprentice for four years, he still might not be able to find a job right away. Mm-hmm. And that's also assuming that the town he is in is in need of another shoemaker or bootmaker. And those were two separate things, by the way, which I found kind of interesting. Is it
1: all under the umbrella of cobbler?
0: not necessarily okay then let's
1: not go there <laughs> yeah Sorry. No, 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 no no
0: it gets it gets really confusing and again this is shoemakers and bootmakers get and cobblers all get put in the same thing but right. they actually aren't the same profession okay which i found kind of interesting interesting no one else is gonna find that interesting no but i here do because i always thought
1: cobbler cobbler was a shoemaker that's it
0: yeah no there's there's a lot more to it which mm-hmm. is yeah I guess. Well, Thank God me. I don't
1: make shoes because I have no idea what I would, you know. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> I don't same. know anything
0: about it. Honestly, same.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um. Now, as this is the case, as he tends to be pretty poor at the age of 18 and setting out into his career, he likely wouldn't have gotten married until he's later on in life. So his late 20s mm-hmm. into early 30s. And that's when he's going to, I guess, quote unquote, settle down, get married, start having kids and then of course, hope that he has a son that can take on any trade
1: that he's picked up. Well, that's interesting that you say that because our story starts in 1807 and Pierre Picard was about 25 years old at that point. So you're, we're right on track with what go. your projection is. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So this is one like dissection of society and mm-hmm. it's relevant to our story as we'll get into later, but also the world in which this is placed is important too. So as we start in eighteen oh seven, We're know, in we're Paris. We're in Paris. Yep. And I want to give Napoleon's a little power. Yeah, a little yeah. dissection of this. Yeah. And this is coming, let's see. If you're not familiar with French history, this is what about thirty years after the revolution
1: so we're we're about um seventeen eighteen years removed from the start of the French Revolution, but the French Revolution lasted lasted half a decade I mean
0: the revolution happens because of wealth disparity, part partially because of massive wealth disparity, and that is continuing on. In 1807, the richest 1% in society in Paris own 50% of all of the assets. So the property, the money, everything. That's huge. And that is at its lowest point in the century. It gets worse. Wow. And by worse, I mean they own more and more. Right. So the wealth gap is very, very visible. And the way that Parisian society and housing is set up, it's very visible to all like layers of society. And that's partially because the way housing is set up. So you have the shopkeepers are typically middle class. um, And there's a range within that, but middle class, and they'll live in the back of their shop or even on the next floor. Then you have the wealthiest in society living on up to the fourth floor, because past the fourth floor, you couldn't get water pressure, at least in the earlier part of the century. So you have the wealthiest living there in very grand luxury, like what you think of when you think of 1800s. Yeah. Yeah. French apartments, like beautiful, all of the furniture, gold Mm -hmm. gilding, everything. And then on the top levels where you couldn't get water pressure, and that's typically going to be, I mean, if you think of French buildings, you know, Mm -hmm. they're not very tall. Yeah. Yeah. in those kind of attic spaces, that's going to be the poorest of society if they could afford to keep a roof over their heads. Mm-hmm. And this is going to be a drastically different experience than everyone who is literally living below their feet because they don't have running water. They have to carry water all the way up the steps. They're not going down to the fourth floor to get it from the rich apartment and bringing it up. Mm-hmm. Um, and they typically can't afford to keep the heat on. So in the wintertime, it's freezing cold. Nor can they afford to run the stove to cook their own
1: food, so this would just mean they didn't have money for the fuel mm-hmm. okay, so buying wood and coal and things like that, they would have been lacking. It
0: was cheaper to buy street food than it was to buy the fuel to
1: cook your own meal cook
0: your own meal got it and keep you warm in the in the process, okay, all right, so very clear wealth discrepancy on top of that, as I mentioned, Napoleon he's in the third year of his first reign which gets confusing we're not going to go into napoleon too much because well we could do a whole whole podcast <laughs> just on him and there are whole podcasts just on napoleon yep. so Go and listen to that if if you're if you're interested in, in learning more. But basically he's in his first reign and the Napoleonic Wars have been going for several years by this point. Now they'll touch pretty much every corner of Europe, but in eighteen oh seven in particular, there are conflicts in Prussia and Russia, and they have captured quote unquote captured and occupied Lisbon and Portugal while trying to maintain a delicate relationship with Spain that's gonna end in like Horrendous bloodshed about a year later, but for now, there's like this delicate relationship. There's a lot of young French soldiers in Spain currently going on while mm-hmm. this story is taking place. And of course, there is their conflict with Britain. Blockades have been set up for years by this point, but Napoleon takes it one step further and declares that no one in Europe should trade or
1: really have anything to do with the British. The British are bad the in British the eyes are of the bad. French at yeah. this moment in time, at least in Napoleon's eyes.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a feud that goes on and on and on and on. But at this point, it's pretty serious. It's getting, getting to that point where not only now are they blockading them, he's actively trying to pass legislation
1: to stop any kind of trade going on. Well, and they're claiming that they're they're English involved in counter-revolutionary forces, trying, you know, monarchists, trying to overthrow Napoleon's government and all this stuff. And this becomes very pertinent in today's story. In 1807, Pierre Picard's life was about to take off. Why? Well, this shoemaker from Nîmes, France, was in love. And not just with another working class stiff like himself. No, no. The woman he loved was rich, she was beautiful, and she was well-connected. Her name was Marguerite. Picard was handsome and brilliant, and by all accounts, meaning this one, an honest and trusting fellow. But it seems Pierre was a little too indiscriminate with his trust because his friends were about to ruin his life. Once Picard proposed marriage to Marguerite and everything was settled, he went to tell his friends the good news. He rode up on a donkey, actually. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that was in the... Yeah. Anyway, uh, he <laughs> rode up on a donkey to tell his friends the good news about his marriage. Uh, his friends usually congregated in the cafe that was owned by their friend, Matthew Lepont, a widower with two young children. When he got there, Picard found Lupin with three of their friends, a man named Gervais Chabard, who had apparently the best donkeys in town, Gilhelm Salar, the peasant, quote unquote, the peasant and a hulking farmer named Antonio Alut. While talking and drinking, Pierre told them the good news, and they all jested about how lucky he was to marry someone with 100,000 francs. All but Lupin offered their congratulations.
0: And that would have been about a half a million dollars in today's money.
1: Yeah? Mm -hmm. Three days until the wedding, he told them, and he wanted them all to be there. And then Picard went away blissfully oblivious to what was conspiring against him back at Lupin's café. Lupin, it seemed, had his eye on the beautiful Marguerite for himself, and he vowed to throw a wrench in the wedding plans. Gervais Chabard and Gilhelm Solar were apparently all for it. But Antoine Allout warned Lupin that Picard was not to be trifled with, that he was liable to go to great depths to get revenge if he felt slighted. Lupin brushed him off, insisting it was only a joke, ha-ha, and his scheme would obstruct the wedding plans for merely a week, tops. He just wanted to see if Marguerite would wait for Picard if he got into trouble. The plan went something like this. Lupin snidely confided to the local police superintendent that Picard was spying for the English. Picard's friendship with an English artist named John Forrester, who had fled during the revolution, added weight to this claim. The superintendent, in turn, crafted a compelling letter filled with a litany of claims of treasonous behavior on the part of Picard. It landed in the hands of the Duke of Rovigo within a few hours, and within one day of Picard telling his friends about his marriage, he was dragged from his bed in the middle of the night and arrested without any explanation. As far as his family was concerned, Picard disappeared without a trace. The authorities had no answers for them. And after two years of searching for him without any luck, Marguerite gave up and married her most ardent suitor, Lupin. In the 1930s version that uh, Jasmine found, it gives her a little bit more credit than the 1830s one. In the 1930s version, she got into trouble for trying to bribe officials for information related to Picard's whereabouts. And she married Lupin because she needed protection under a new name. Which would make more sense. Um, But seven years go by. In
0: 1814, Napoleon's imperial government fell. And as a result, some of the political prisoners arrested under his rule were no longer considered enemies of the state. The Finestral Fort, which held a lot of these prisoners, was often called the Great Wall of the Alps and was a fortress on the modern day border between France and Italy. When the Fenestral Fort prisoners were released, they included a man under the name of Joseph Lucher. And Joseph Lucher, well, he entered the prison in 1807, and that should be sounding pretty familiar because Lucher was actually Picard. They had changed his name on an entry log to keep anyone from finding him. Once the imperial government fell, Lucher would fall to the bottom of the priority list along with other political prisoners, and was released to make space for new prisoners. Lucher sailed to Milan shortly after his release because he had befriended an Italian priest shortly after he went to the finestral. The priest was a learned man with massive wealth and keen financial skills, and his brother had been an Italian prince. The brother had imprisoned him for greed because he wanted the location of the vast fortune that the priest had accumulated. And the priest had been in prison for over a decade by the time Picard entered the fenestral. The priest was touched by the tragic misfortune of Picard, and so he taught Picard, all about financial speculation. And when the priest died shortly before the fall of the imperial government, he divulged the location of all of his wealth to Picard, making him the sole heir. Picard... Well, it was his for the taking when he walked out of that prison in 1814. And once Picard had his hands on the entire fortune, which included a huge cache of jewels, plus cash squirreled away all across the banks of Europe, he made his way from Amsterdam to Hamburg to London, investing in property and generating a significant income of, well, over 600,000 francs a year, which... In today's money is about $3.5 million. Finally, with seemingly infinite resources, he was ready to return to Paris to find out exactly what had happened, what had put him in
1: prison in 1807. So when Picard got to Paris, he started paying people for information. He wanted to know about the events surrounding his imprisonment. It was fortunate, though, no one recognized him because it had been almost a decade since the events in question, and he'd done seven years of hard time. So he looked like a 50-year-old man, even though he was about 32. Imagine a castaway Tom Hanks look in pantaloons.
0: See, I'm thinking the guy from Les Mis, uh which I can't
1: remember is his name. Russell is it Russell Crowe? Is that who you're thinking of?
0: No, because he's the, like... Uh... I'm doing the Dude, motion. singing. It, <sighs> I just, it was so he's, cringy. He's the, like, guard. It's yeah. Wolverine. Why can't oh, I remember? Oh, Hugh Jackman. Yeah, it's Hugh Jackman. So, because yeah. he, like, steals bread and gets put in a French prison. Sure. So I'm thinking of, like, a cross between him and Sweeney Todd right now. Oh, okay. That's, that's my vision yeah. Yeah. Of, of Picard. <laughs>
1: okay. It's vivid. Either way. That's the, the, <laughs> really the second The second time you've referenced Sweeney Todd... In a story that we've been telling. So that's like on the brain for you. It's
0: because I watched it recently. Nice. And so, yeah, it's just swimming around up there. Swimming
1: around up there. So Picard's first big tip came from a man who claimed to know someone who was bragging back in 1807 about knowing everyone involved in the case. This man identified the bragger as Antonio Alut. And he had gone back to his childhood home in Nîmes with his wife and family. Posing as an abbey, or posing as a priest named Baldini, Picard arrived in Nîmes within a few days and started making inquiries into the Aleut family. Antonio was in poverty. His brother was doing quite well, however. Uh, Baldini told Aleut that he had given the last rites to a man named Picard back in 1811 in a prison in France, and he had given him a large diamond if he would only find out the names of the men who had betrayed him. At the mention of Picard's name, Antonio choked up and told Baldini, that Picard was one of his good friends. Alut was hard up for cash, but apparently still loyal to his friends. He was resolute to not divulging their names. That is, until his wife burst in, crying and screaming about another great fortune that had befallen Alut's brother. So Alut's brother was doing really well, and they are not. So she was upset about that. When she saw the diamond, she got the details from Baldini, and she pushed Alut to... Give him the names, essentially. She was like, who cares? We need the money. Take the diamond and give him the names. The three names? Can you guess?
0: They aren't the ones from the beginning, are they? They
1: sure are. So Shocked. <laughs> I know, I know. So Alut tells this priest named Baldini, who is actually Picard, that the three men who betrayed him were Gervais Chabard, Gilhelm Solari, and Matthew Lupin. So in short order, Picard found out that Marguerite had married Lupin two years after his disappearance, and now Lupin owned a string of successful shops and cafes in Paris. He was rich. His old friends Gervais Chabat and Gilhelm Solari were still living in Paris and frequenting Lupin's cafe. So back to Paris he went. One day not long
0: after a loose conversation with Baldini, an old woman walked into Lupin's cafe she had told the owner, Lepan, of a man who she owed a debt to, a man who had been ruined during the imperial government. And she said that the man had refused to take money. All that he wanted was a starting position in a respectable business, something like a waiter. And that, well, if a waiter position had not been available, he was more than content to work as a lemonade boy. <laughs>
1: I'm sorry. Lemonade boy. Lemonade boy. mm.
0: Well, I mean, this is so I'm guessing this is the translation from like citron presse, which if you've never had a citron presse, it's a whole thing. They basically bring out to you like the ingredients of lemonade Mm -hmm. and you make your own. So it's got the amount of sugar and lemon that you want. So it's a pretty big thing in France. So that sounds funny to us, but like
1: it's like legitimate
0: it's a legitimate thing and yeah. like at a fancier cafe you would have someone mix it for you in yeah. front of you so like think when they bring like the flaming cheese or whatever to your table
1: you mean fondue
0: no saganaki oh like if you go to greek restaurants maybe all of I my feel frame of super reference
1: uncultured right now no
0: all of my frame of reference is super weird <laughs> i'll so... just sit over <laughs> here and laugh at lemonade
1: boy <laughs> and not be any the wiser <laughs>
0: Um, or I guess like when they bring like, well, the fajitas isn't quite the same.
1: (laughs) Fucking chilies. That's a reference I can understand.
0: (laughs) Or like the hibachi at your table. Like that sort of stuff. Flip a shrimp into
1: my hat. Or I don't know, have you ever
0: been to like a Mongolian grill? Yeah. When they bring out the skewers and they, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. So it's that sort of thing, but it's for lemonade. Okay cool it's cool if we ever
1: i feel like the overhead on that would be really low like yeah. that's a great <laughs> that's a great experience you know
0: hey it's it's super fun i anytime i'm in paris which makes me sound a lot cooler than i am um i always get citron presse Ugh,
1: whenever i'm in paris i always get citron presse and there are
0: multiple different types you can get grapefruit and Ooh. which is pomp for uh, anyone who drinks Lacroix, yeah um yeah there's all different types that you can get <laughs> Love it. <laughs> so now everyone knows what citron presse or lemonade I love boys. It. Very cool. Were. Yeah. So that would have been like quite an exclusive experience, especially at the higher end cafes.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um. <laughs> so now we know what a lemonade boy is. Yeah. I will continue with the story. The old woman said that she would even pay Lupin a hundred francs per month to take him on, as a secret. Of course, she didn't want to hurt his pride. How could Lupin refuse? So he took the boy on. Yeah. Um, So turns out he wasn't so much of a boy as a 50-year-old traveling worker. He was scraggly with dirty clothes, and the whole family looked upon this man as a charity case. Lupin's wife, Marguerite, thought she recognized this man when she met him, but after close inspection set her mind firmly against knowing this person and went on about her days. They called this man Old Boy Prosper.
1: Okay, so that's the that's from the translation in the eighteen thirties. So I don't know if this is like if it's like commonly known and he should just be called Joe or something, you know what I mean? Like but this is what kept popping up. Um okay. he also went by the name Joseph Lucher because that was in the 1930s version and they said he was a waiter named Joseph. Mm-hmm. Um so but I I think it's probably more realistic, I don't know if I should use that word. Um but uh we'll just call him Old Boy Prosper. So this is, you know, this is just a an old uh migrant worker who is just looking for an opportunity. So, Old Boy Prosper. Soon after Lupin hired Old Boy Prosper, Chabard failed to show up for their daily drinking session. And so Solari, who was worried, left the bar mid-afternoon to find out what was wrong. He returned to Lupin's cafe at 9 p.m. that night and told Lupin that Chabard was found in an alley, stabbed to death, with a knife still protruding from his chest. On the handle of the knife was carved number one. That's uh, that's distressing for all involved, right? Uh, the police mount a search, they do an investigation, but they come up empty-handed. On his way home from Lupin's Cafe one night, not long after Shabard's attack, Solari doubled over from stomach pain. A doctor was called, and the doctor told Solari that he'd been poisoned. Solari died in a fit of convulsions while foaming at the mouth. Since he'd eaten at Lupin's Cafe that night, the police arrested Lupin for murder by poison. And they only let him go after, when Solari's body was laid out for the viewing, a note was discovered pinned to his chest that read, Number two.
0: Lupin pressed the local police to nail down a suspect in Chabard's murder, but they found nothing. His friend's death seemed to be the first in a series of unfortunate events in Lupin's life. First, someone poisoned his dog to death. Then a few weeks later, his wife's parrot dropped dead. They found poisoned almonds in his stomach. Bird autopsy? (laughs) Is that a... Is it a necropsy? Yeah, necropsy. (laughs) Or necropsy. I don't know how to pronounce it. But yes, yeah, they would have, I guess, done that. Can you
1: imagine? With oh a, my God, my parrot! Get it on the table! Let's see what's in its stomach, you well, know? Well, I guess
0: a parrot would have been fairly expensive <laughs> Probably to super
1: expensive. At that point.
0: Yeah. Okay. Interesting. All right. Okay. Lupin had a 16 or 18-year-old daughter, depending on which source you're reading, from his first marriage, and a dashing young suitor happened upon her one day a man fashioned as a wealthy Marquis. He gained access to her by greasing the palms of those closest to her, like her maid, valet, etc. And before long, Mademoiselle Lupin was sleeping with the Marquis, and she might have even gotten pregnant. She confessed to her father and mother, who in turn brokered a betrothal between the girl and the Marquis. The Marquis insisted on a lavish 150-person wedding feast at a swanky restaurant in town, but the night of the wedding, everyone showed up but the Marquis.
1: So the Marquis sent a letter to his bride, Lupin's daughter, saying that, hey, I've had a little bit of trouble. I'm held up, but I'm, I'm, I'll am i be there. OK, so just enjoy the festivities. Everyone eat, have fun, and then I will show up. When the dinner plates were
0: served, each one came with a note. In a matter of seconds, everyone at the party read the Marquis was a fraud, a pirate recently escaped from prison, and he had fled the city. The family was crushed, and Lupin took his family to the countryside to escape the gossip. In the 1930s version, the daughter dies of shock a week after the wedding. While away, his restaurant in Paris was set on fire, their apartment above looted, and their livelihoods scattered to the wind. His family's future seemingly ruined all of his fancy friends dropped him. Except one. Old boy Prosper.
1: Old boy Prosper,
0: sticking around. A true friend in a time of need, the faithful servant declared his undying loyalty and offered to follow the family anywhere so long as he could share in their meals and have a place to sleep. Ah, How sweet. So Lupin tried to start over by opening a small cafe in a town outside of Paris, but Lupin's tragedy was far from over. His second child from his first marriage, a son named Eugene was a wild party boy. That doesn't really match, does it? No, it doesn't. (laughs) (laughs) One night, his friends dared him to rob a liquor store, a dare he immediately accepted. Someone tipped off the police, though, and they were caught mid-robbery. Eugene was given a 20-year prison sentence.
1: I I say liquor store, but I'm assuming it was like a liquor shack. At this point,
0: they're still like filling up bottles from the big barrels. Mm. So if they're stealing big barrels or taking the money... That, I could kind of see why. The so would it be in zones. the
1: back of a tavern or something?
0: Not necessarily. It depends on a specialty shop. Yeah, it could have been that. It could have been a wholesaler. It just sure. depends on okay.
1: what it is. Cool. Uh, it's important to note, too, in this version, in the 1830s version, it said that the police were receiving monetary bribes to try to give Eugene the, the death sentence. That's insane. And can you guess who those were coming from? Oh, I have a big guess. (laughs) (laughs) Old Boy Prosper. Old Boy Prosper. (laughs) What a name. I know. Um,
0: Yeah. (laughs) Marguerite died soon after, probably from grief over her total ruined life. And Lupin was left with his daughter. So this is another daughter? Or is this the same Same daughter. daughter? Same daughter. So in... This is... Okay. Okay. In so, the 30s
1: version... In the 30s version. Yeah. In the 30s version, the daughter dies. Lupin, Marguerite, and the son leave town. The son gets arrested. And then it's just Lupin and Marguerite. And then Marguerite... Is,
0: dies. She dies. Then, but in the 1800s version, Lupin still has his daughter. Yep. And she's the only one. And she's the only one. But his prospects and future are a barren wasteland of hopelessness. <laughs> i
1: really painting a picture for you, right? I love it. <laughs> <laughs>
0: The Lupins, who are now on the brink of starvation, were left with only one friend. Shocked.
1: Oh boy, Prosper! Shocked, 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 shocked. shocked. Guess who's back? <laughs> back again. <laughs> Prosper's back. <laughs> and of
0: course, he offers his assistance. He mm-hmm. had some financial savings that he would be willing to give Lupin's daughter if only she would become his concubine. Rather than starve to death, the daughter agreed and hammered the final nail into the coffin of the corpse of Lupin's reputation. The only thing left to take from Lupin was his life. And this is this is kind of messed up, right? Because he was engaged to this girl's mother.
1: Mm -hmm. It's all very. Yeah. Well, the whole point, too, is that especially in The Count of Monte Cristo, uh. This guy becomes consumed by his revenge, and it's, like, way, way farther than just getting back at somebody. It's like, okay, this guy has almost become evil, Mm -hmm. which is a really interesting dynamic. But
0: That's what we're seeing.
1: Yeah. So
0: one night, presumably walking aimlessly in despair, Lupin found himself in the Tuileries garden. Walking alone in the dark, a masked man jumped out in front of him.
1: A masked man jumped out in front of him. Okay, I'm going to play the masked man. Jasmine is going to play Lupion. All right, are you ready? I'm ready. Here we go. I've jumped out in front of you. I'm wearing a mask. Ah! Do you remember 1807? Why? Do you know the crime you've committed? A crime? An infamous crime. Out of jealousy, you had your friend Picard plunged into a dungeon. Don't you remember? Ah! God punishes (laughs) You can do it. Okay. Ah, God punishes me rigorously. No, it is not God who punishes you, but God himself. He who stabbed Shabard through the heart. He who poisoned Solari. Who gave your daughter the path to her dishonorable husband and led the plot where your son fell. It is he whose hand killed your dog and your wife's parrot. He who set your house on fire and pushed thieves into it finally it was he who made your wife die of pain your daughter his concubine yes in your boy prosper you might recognize Picard as he places his number three Ah! and then with that Picard stabbed Lupin through the heart and there's a lot of that in this story apparently and Lupin died instantly but before Picard could escape Strong arms seized him from behind, bound and gagged him, and carried him off. Picard awoke in a dungeon, chained to a pallet. A tall, brawny figure stood over him, and neither man spoke for several minutes. Finally, Picard asked who the man was. The man retorted by asking Picard what name he would like to be called. Abbe Baldini? Joseph Lucher? Old Boy Prosper? Or Pierre Picard? I imagine him being like, I got you. Perhaps his brooding stature or the look in his eye seemed familiar to Picard, but it wasn't until the man told him his story that all doubts of his identity were removed. It was he to whom Picard had sold the diamond in exchange for the three names of the men responsible for Picard's false imprisonment. This was Antoine Alu. The jeweler Alut had sold the diamond to apparently swindled him, paying only half what the gem was worth, and then selling it for the proper amount a few weeks later. Alut went mad with rage and killed the man, and then he went on the lamb. He took his wife to Greece, where she died soon after. Then, in his grief, Alut went searching for his former friends to see what had become of them. He arrived in Paris just as Picard had finished his rampage, only coming upon him in the seconds after he had stabbed Lupin to death. And now he had Picard under his complete and total control. No one will ever find you here, he told Picard. And then he sat down to eat. Picard asked for food, and Alut asked him how much he'd be willing to pay for his bread. Picard refused, tried to say that he was broke, to which Alut responded with the names and the places of all the banks holding Picard's fortune. And so things went like this for a couple of days. Alut would come and take his meals in front of Picard, who was chained up and dying of thirst. He was hoping to starve the money out of him, but Picard refused to relent. And finally, Alut got really frustrated and just stabbed him to death. Alut fled to England and died soon after in 1828, but not before he confessed this story to a Catholic priest on his deathbed. The priest's letter said that he hoped this information would help them locate the body of Pierre Picard. Now, the 1930s version said the police actually found Picard before he died of his wounds and extracted a confession from him, which I don't necessarily believe. But who knows? How can you tell? Who actually knows? But that is the story of Pierre Picard, a.k.a. the real Count of Monte Cristo. What do you think of this story? Wow. It's a doozy, isn't it? It is. And it's just so full of twists and turns. It's so grandois. It's just, I love it. It's so good. Lots of revenge. So much revenge. And revenge stories are my favorite. I love them. I also love that this guy is consumed by his revenge. He, he it, 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 I think the moral of the story is, is that, you know, even if you get revenge on every single person, you're not going to get what you want.
0: Well, and I mean, with that kind of wealth, there's so much he could have done with his life. And just not even bothered with those people that he left behind. Yeah.
1: I mean, I got to say that if I had gone through what Pierre went through, Mm -hmm. I probably would have tried to exact some revenge. I mean. But with that kind of money, just like pay a hitman. Yes, but it was personal. He wanted them to feel pain. Well, pay a hitman to do that for you. (laughs) Like, honestly, (laughs) why get your hands dirty? (laughs) I don't know. You're right.
0: Work smarter, not harder.
1: I think I think for for Pierre, it was more about the personal touch. I guess so. There's some deep psychological drama there. Yeah, I we think. have
0: a we have a difference of opinion on how to exact revenge. Indeed.
1: <laughs> Noted.
0: <laughs> All right. Yeah, I'm not gonna be doing that for myself. If I've yeah. got that kind of money, no.
1: <laughs> I mean, I guess it depends on like the weight of the of the uh not infraction, but the weight of the betrayal.
0: Yeah. Also this is purely hypothetical. I'm not gonna send a hitman after anyone. maggie does not believe me
1: (laughs) i do yes i do now i'm i'm a big believer in you know don't carry that bullshit around but i also i'm a scorpio so i have grudges from like 2010 that i still think about that make my blood pressure go up see
0: i'm a gemini so i can't hold on to anything for very long but i will just kill you there on the spot so you know
1: I get it. I get it. (laughs) Also. (laughs) So you're a killer of opportunity and I'm more of a methodical. Yeah. yeah, I'm definitely an
0: opportunity killer. (laughs) (laughs) Also
1: for legal reasons. Yes. This is all hypothetical. (laughs) So was that, what were your main takeaways from this story? What did you not know about that you know about now?
0: Um, Well, basically, all I knew about was like the whole revenge thing. I've not read The Count of Monte Cristo, but now I want to. I keep wanting to call him The Count of Monte (laughs) Cristo.
1: He makes a mean pie crust. You know, (laughs) this is categorized as a real life story. Like, I mean, it's painted in the light of like this is this came from a meticulously kept police file. But it reads a little bit like fiction sometimes. But sometimes fact is stranger than fiction. And I love it when that happens.
0: Well, we've done other French stories from this roughly this time period. And it's all a little piece together and grandoir. And so,
1: yeah, yeah, I think we can
0: take it with a, a grain of salt. A
1: massive grain of salt. But awesome story. Really cool. And, you know, I don't think anybody won. Nobody won in this story. No.
0: And that's always this
1: case with revenge stories. No one ever actually wins. No one has like warm and fuzzies riding off into the sunset. No. No. Folks, (laughs) we hope that you enjoyed this story. If you did, we would love for you to head to your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. Um, Also, I think we have a review that we'd like to... Oh, yes. Yeah. Can you pull that up real quick? I will. Cool. Um, Also, uh, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, if you would. Okay.
0: And our review was from username KBBK2020. And it reads, interesting deep dives into history. Informational, but lighthearted. Worth a listen.
1: Thank you very much. We appreciate that feedback. And uh, yeah, guys, keep it coming. Keep it coming. Uh, also, if you are interested in getting our episodes a few hours early and ad free, you can find those available on our Patreon feed at patreon.com slash the good old pod. So feel free to check those out. Jasmine, what about social stuff?
0: So social stuff. So on Twitter, you can find us at the good OD pod and on Instagram, Facebook and TikTok. For all of your unrelated viewing needs um,
1: <laughs> you can find us at the good old days pod oh and jasmine's cleaning up on tiktok i'm trying I'm dude trying. you're doing a really nice job yeah. like i'm i'm scared of it but you're you're taking the tiktok by the horns i
0: just do a lot of irrelevant things some of the things are relevant like i did a whole bunch of hot takes on history sure but then i also did a video about why are walmart parking lots so bad and that got like 2,000 views.
1: Hey, you know what? That might be a primary source for somebody in the future.
0: I hope so. I really <laughs> hope someone uses my like frustration at Walmart yeah. and writes it into like their PhD thesis. So that would make my entire
1: legacy. There you go. That's <laughs> it. That's all we want. Well, folks, thank y'all so much. We hope you enjoy your week. Goodbye! Bye! Bye.